Hey you, welcome to Evolve, a show to help you become a hero and solve the world's greatest challenges. I'm your host, Brandon Stover, founder of Plato University, and I interview social innovators, entrepreneurs, and thinkers about the global problems we face and the solutions they have created to solve them. Today's challenge, how to solve the education crisis. The dawn of the 21st century has proven to be a critical time in global transformation. Every context, including social, technological, cultural, and ecological, has rapidly changed. One can look no further than our global pandemic, raging wildfires, addictive social media, and rates of depression, or a list of other trends in the last decade to see that this transformation has not been entirely positive. Although history suggests that education plays a critical role in positively changing these world systems, it has not seen a substantial update since the indoctrination of the industrial model of education in the 20th century. How can we possibly solve problems of today and tomorrow if we are still developing human capabilities with the tools of yesterday? The rate of transformation and global problems has outpaced education's ability to fulfill its purpose to prepare students to address this transformation personally and collectively to positively push human progress forward. Many of the challenges our world faces are primarily education in nature. If we address the education crisis, we can have hope for solving these other problems. But just how are we going to solve the education crisis? In exploring the answer to this question, I've had the opportunity to speak with leading experts like Zoe Weil, Elizabeth Crawford, and Carla Marshall education entrepreneurs like Raya Bichari and Victoria Ransom, and community builders like Mariti Saraf. In the coming episodes, these leaders will be your guide in understanding the core problems in our education system and how we can fix it. In this episode, we uncovered the outdated practices and systems keeping education from fulfilling its purpose and the building blocks that can be used to develop new models of education that will properly prepare students for solving our world's most pressing problems. In the weeks following this episode, I will be releasing each individual interview I had with these experts, which dives deep into their solutions, how it works, and the stories of building them. This episode is a part of a series of research theses about how to solve the world's greatest challenges from climate change to poverty to education. All of these are living documents, meaning as I conduct more interviews, I will continue to update the thesis about how to solve that particular challenge. These episodes are meant to be an introduction, a starting off point for you to understand a global challenge from first principles and the solutions that exist so you can contribute to these solutions or be inspired to create new ones. You can find a comprehensive summary of this thesis about how to solve the education crisis by going to evolvethe.world slash research slash education. Now let's dive in. I think it's hard to work towards something if you don't define what you're working towards. So we must first ask ourselves, what is the purpose of education? Oh, great question. Because I think we've forgotten that. I, th I <laughs> think somewhere along the way, we came to believe that schooling is for kids to get good test scores or perhaps to get into college. That was Victoria Ransom, co-founder of Prisma, a full-time virtual education program for kids grades four through eight, that fully replaces regular school and is a low lift for parents. I think education is to prepare kids to really thrive in their adult lives mm -hmm. and ideally to want to uh, positively contribute to their communities and their worlds mm. in their 
adult lives. Yeah, that, that, that is ultimately what we should be doing at school is, is giving kids the tools they need to really thrive as adults and to be positive members of society. But I think along the way we've narrowed it down to sort of school is school is succeeding if you get good test scores or or perhaps school is a school is doing well if you get kids into college but you know that this giving kids the tools and the mindset and the skills they'll need to succeed in adult life you can't wait until college for that you've got to start really young that's when kids are most sponge-like and malleable i think thriving and creating positive members of society are goals of many education institutions but our next expert, Raya Bichari, shares why that must be taken one step further. Raya is the founder and chief executive officer of the School of Humanity, a revolutionary online high school with a progressive model and a skill-based curriculum. One of my founding team members and I, Chris, he has a great phrase for the education system. He calls it the human development system. Mm. Uh, and when you call it that, it encompasses not just schools and universities, but informal learning experiences. All of that is this human development system. And what I like about um, that term for it is the purpose of it is embedded in the name. Yeah. And for us, we see it as a way to better serve our species and push humanity towards a positive progress. What's interesting, though, is a lot of schools will say that's their purpose, right? They'll say we're mission driven or we want to create caring citizens and global citizens or they'll phrase it in different ways. But we're all trying to say the same thing. But then we do the opposite. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when it comes to action, we still fall back to systems and frameworks that aren't actually designed to push humanity forward. So education should be about helping each student thrive individually and helping to better humanity as a collective. But our current education system is falling short because it's not designed with this goal in mind. To help understand this problem from first principles, Zoe Weil, co-founder and president of the Institute for Humane Education, is going to explain the root of the educational crisis. So one of the primary problems is that we are not by design or purpose preparing young people to address and solve the challenges that we face in our world. And whether those are challenges in students' own communities or the states they live in or their nations, we're just not preparing them to do that. And in fact, the mission statement at the United States Department of Education, the, the goal is to prepare students for global competitiveness. Hmm. And when we think about that goal in the context of climate change or in the context of inequities in our world or in the context of a globalized economic system in which the choices that we make in our daily lives all the time are affecting other people, other species, and the environment that sustains all of us. When we think about the world we live in, being prepared for global competitiveness isn't a sufficient mission for today's world. So that's a core problem that goes to the very root of the educational endeavor, if you will. And I would say that they're interrelated goals. So for example, when we address an issue like, okay, students perhaps are not graduating with sufficient literacy and numeracy and scientific skills. That may be true. And it's also true that even if they were to graduate with exceptional skills, they still wouldn't be prepared 
Mm. to address and solve the challenges that we face because that's not what they've been taught to do. And how is this lack of preparing students to face global challenges affecting them on a personal level? Raya shares a bleak view about the loss of purpose, meaning, and a connection to school. We're seeing that 70% of students, according to a recent Yale study, report hating school. In, in the United Kingdom, the mental health among students is in such decline that newspapers like The Guardian have an entire section on student mental health. And I really believe one of the challenges I see as well with working with learners is often they, they want to explore all these passions. They want to pursue 21st century skills and expand their portfolio, but they don't have time to do so because the system puts so much emphasis and gives so much importance and weight to these exam results and test results that everyone in the system, including the educators and the schools, have to prioritize that. That comes first. Like mm-hmm. if you want to take a course on Udemy on building, you know, virtual reality, like I'm sorry, but that's going to have to be a secondary thing because you have to prioritize your exam results. And at the same time, if that's just not what it motivates you, you, you know, that's not what excites you because there's really no deeper meaning or transcendental cause behind doing an exam, it can really contribute to a lack of a feeling of a lack of purpose mm. and just overwhelming stress with no real direction or meaning to that stress. So I think it's just straight up unethical what we do to these students. The education system is not preparing students personally or professionally to address their lives or the global challenges we face. Let's explore what elements in the current education system are contributing to this core problem. We're going to explore this through the lens that Raya introduces of what we are learning, why we are learning, how we are learning, and where we are learning. There's multiple layers of issues and dimensions of issues with what we're learning in schools, why we're learning, how we're learning it, and where the learning is happening. So in terms of what we're learning, the curriculum itself, the things we choose to focus on in high schools and to some extent universities are very much still driven um, by the industrial era standards. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of emphasis on information and content and memorization of content. There's a lot of emphasis on these isolated subjects, uh, which really exist in our minds more than anything. Reality is actually very interdisciplinary. And that's one layer of the issue. You have this, what we're learning. We're not putting enough emphasis on the most in-demand skills in the workforce, for example, or uh, on interdisciplinary things, or even the key competencies required to find oneself and to um, find meaning in life. Carla Marshall, co-author of Worldwise Learning, A Teacher's Guide to Shaping a Just and Sustainable Future, agrees that isolated subjects and a lack of connection to the wider world are present in current curriculums. So there are obviously quite a few issues. It's around the abstraction of the learning. So we discreetly cut up all these parts of the learning program. You know, you've got your mathematics and your literacy and your science and your social studies. They don't talk to each other. And not only do they not talk to each other, but we don't help students make connections between the learning and those discipline areas and then the relevance of that learning to the wider world. Mm. So that's great. I've learned how to do this. I don't know, angles and geometry. Why? What does that help me? do in the world. And so that kind of divide between what's happening in the school and what's happening in the real world and and helping students feel like they have agency and the ability to take their learning and do something with it is really problematic and something that needs to be addressed. And as separate disciplines and knowledge concepts really how we experience the world? Victoria believes not. So then why are we teaching our kids this way? I think it's just 
the focus on traditional education of knowledge and knowledge recall and also breaking um, learning up into academic disciplines, which is not how the world works. And so, you know, we certainly have a perspective at Prisma that learning should be interdisciplinary because that's how it makes more sense and also because that is how the world works and that it should be as hands-on and applied to the real world as possible. I think for so many kids, they sit in classrooms and they say, why am I learning this? When will I ever need this? Which again, takes away that motivation. But there are many ways to apply the learning that kids do in schools to real world problems that are relevant to kids. Why am I learning this? A question that plagues every educator and one that we have probably asked ourselves at some point in our educational career, if we were honest with ourselves. And the traditional education system's why, focusing on exams and grades, is not aligned with the students' why, as Raya, Zoe, and Victoria will share. In terms of why learning is happening, the incentives of learning in today's world are largely driven by exams and standardized tests. There isn't enough of an incentive of learning happening to fulfill curiosity or learning happening to better oneself and to better the world. In fact, most young people don't even know what that feels like. Yeah. And that's a real tragedy. Yeah, I think uh, at the core that comes before, you know, problems that we have with assessment or, you know, c- connecting their learning to real world problems and projects that are going on. And even students perceiving if the education is valuable to them, them having an interest in a meaningful connection to it. Exactly. Right. So we are assessing some of the wrong things. We are not deeply engaging students in issues that they actually care about. So many of them feel like the whole system is, you know, either boring or irrelevant to their lives. They don't see the purpose. I mean, some of them do, but we're talking about a lot of kids who are not being prepared for the world that that they live in. Another problem is I just think there's been a loss of focus on the inherent joy of learning. Mm. That l- learning is amazing. It's interesting. It's exciting. I think kids are born wanting to learn. Watch yes. a little kid at play and they are, they are working all day long at play and they're learning. And somewhere along the way, focus on testing is one of the reasons which I'll touch on. But just we've forgotten that learning can and should be really exciting and really interesting and really engaging. And if you don't start with that, how can we really expect kids to bring their full selves to to school if they're not loving it? No, I think a a big part of it is this shift from the intrinsic motivation that we're born with. You know, humans are very malleable. We're not an animal that's already born with everything programmed. We're program to keep learning to adapt and we shift that from intrinsic to intrinsic things like grades and trying to get into a college or fitting in these subject silos and i think that's a a real crime for the students yeah because then you get out into a world where you're not given a b c d grades anymore and you have to learn to find your own motivation and to find your own way and yeah i absolutely agree kids are naturally intrinsically motivated to learn and challenge themselves, but it gets taken away along through the the process, through the system. So what we are learning is broken, why we are learning is broken, but what about how this learning is happening? In terms of how the learning is happening, if you think about what unites most 
of education today. Despite all the variety of international curriculums and geographic differences, there are fundamental features to our education system that are pretty much the same in most places in the world. We organize learners by grades and ages into classrooms. Um, we have classrooms. <laughs> we have lessons, right? And they're usually maybe an hour, a bit longer long. We do these semesters. Like I, I know it sounds like I'm stating the obvious by describing these frameworks of the education system, but we kind of accept these things as a given. Mm -hmm. But what we're trying to do is say, why why are we doing that? Why can't learners progress in the curriculum at their own age, right? Like right. why can't why can't we learn through a different framework other than courses? for example. Yeah. Can you go a little bit deeper into the lack of personalization that we have for students within the education system now? Absolutely. There's, again, multiple issues with the lack of personalization. One, there's a lack of personalization in curriculum. Mm -hmm. And a lot of like international private schools like to claim that they provide optionality for learners. Like you can choose between all of these different subjects. <laughs> right. But really, it's, it's still picking from a pretty standardized menu. And once you pick that subject, you learn the same things that everyone else learns and you're assessed in the same way that everyone else is assessed. Mm -hmm. And so there is this lack of real variety in terms of the journeys that you can take in your, in your curriculum. There is the issue with pace. We set these structures and boundaries around semesters and grade levels, assuming that everyone has to move at the same pace, whereas I might take longer to master certain numeracy skills, but might move very quickly in communication skills. Right. But I still have to kind of be at the same level as everyone else on my age. So that's another issue. And then the third thing is also a lack of personalization around assessment. We assess everyone the same way. And some learners genuinely don't test well in the traditional system, but they're absolutely brilliant if you put them in a different context, or right. if you have them do a project-based assessment or a presentation-based assessment, or even a conversation-based one. And we're really failing young minds by failing to measure and effectively evaluate their strengths and weaknesses by focusing on standardized paper-based exams that are often very arbitrary measurements of what someone is capable of. Victoria further belabors this problem of rigid age groups and grade levels rather than having students progress at their competency level. One of the first things that comes to mind is just this very sort of conveyor belt nature of education where kids come in at a certain age and because they're that age then they're put in a certain grade level and because of that grade level they're expected to know certain things and to move at a certain pace. Right. And so the kids that are capable of moving faster, too bad, they just have to be a bit bored or a bit frustrated. And the kids that need a little more time, unfortunately get left behind. And, and so you have kids that are expected to move into fifth grade, but they never really fully grasp fourth grade. So then that problem only compounds. So I think this inability of the traditional education system to differentiate based on kids differing speeds of learning and even with the same kid, you're going to have one kid that can move very fast and is very advanced in math, but needs to really take their time with writing, for example, or reading. And what about where the learning is happening? We've unfortunately come to set these kind of boundaries around learning. Schools and formal institutions are seen as the main bearers of education and learning, whereas there's so much of education that happens outside of those formal structures that often goes unrecognized 
or it's given a secondary status or less preference because it doesn't fall under those formal structures. But learning doesn't have to happen behind institutional walls. In fact, trends from the workforce are demanding that it doesn't, as Rhea explains. What some research is showing, actually, that more and more parents that are working remotely are now seeking that flexibility in the education system for their children. Mm. It's one of the reasons either homeschooling or online schooling or hybrid models are now increasingly popular is because the once parents start to experience this different way of working and contributing value to society, they start to rethink those structures for their children as well. So that's one thing. The other is, of course, we're seeing this increasing global skills gap. So given how slow our education system has been to change and given the constant you know, acceleration of pace and of change in our world, we're seeing these, this widening gap between the skills that are currently in the workforce and the skills employers are looking for. And, and that gap is estimated to cost G20 countries alone something around $13 trillion. And of course, that's putting a lot of pressure, mostly on higher education, but to some extent on K-12 education, to really rethink the curriculum and the kinds of skills that we're equipping learners with. The, uh, the last point I'll add with regards to the future of work is around automation. What we're seeing with technological automation is the tasks that are routine, monotonous, mechanical, repetitive, are most easily taken over by machines. So that's changing the kinds of roles that people are doing. It's redefining roles. Mm. And that's putting, again, pressure on us in education in a good way to focus more on higher order thinking, creative thinking, strategic thinking, interdisciplinary thinking, the stuff that machines aren't very good at yet. So if we don't solve this problem, we're going to experience a $13 trillion skills gap. What else is at stake in the world if this is not solved? To answer that, Zoe helps us through systems thinking to see just how linked the education system is to our world. If we don't understand the interconnected systems that come into play with solving any problem, we are A, not going to be able to solve that problem. B, if we come up with solutions, they're bound to be unintended negative consequences because we haven't looked at all of the systems. And There's almost no problem that you can identify that doesn't have the following interconnected systems, the economic system, the political system, the energy system, the education system, the transportation system, our legal system, our healthcare system. So these systems all come into play so much of the time when we are trying to address a problem. And they're all connected to our education system. And the education system is the root system that underlies all of them. And this is really important. So many people will think, oh, we want to solve X problem. Well, we we can't go to the education system because that is a really slow system. That, That takes a long time to educate people to change whatever it is we need to change. We have to go straight to our political system and pass a law, or we have to go straight to a policy system, or we have to go straight to protests or our legal system. And those things are really important to do. But if we don't fundamentally change the education system, we are just going to have to keep trying to put out fires forever. So the education system 
if we can really transform it, if we can really achieve that goal, then what we will start to see is that all of these other systems will be made more equitable, more sustainable, and more humane because a generation of young people will have learned how to do that. Hmm. And it is a slow process, but it is absolutely essential. And if we continue to neglect changing the education system, then I don't see us being effective at at ultimately addressing some of the potentially calamitous problems that we're facing. Could you elaborate a little more on what's at stake in the world if we don't, you know, address how we're educating our children and giving them the skills and the tools that they need to solve these problems? Well, climate change is one that we can always come back to. It is not a future prospect. It is happening right now. We are losing species at a, at a rate that we haven't seen since the last great extinction. Of course, we didn't see that for ourselves because we weren't here. To be here for that, to be here for losing so many species every day, we can't even count them. To see the fires that are raging in North America and Australia and in other parts of the world, to, to witness what is happening right now and fail to address it, that is, that's immoral. That, that essentially failure to bring these issues to students and prepare them to solve these problems is immoral. And we are seeing more and more young people expressing hopelessness and despair. And they don't have to feel hopeless and despair. None of the problems that we are facing are incapable of being solved. They're all solvable problems. But when they are seeing all of these problems and all of these injustices, because it's easy to see them now that we live in a globalized world in the internet right. age, we're inundated with that. When they see that, but they are not given the tools to actually solve the problems around them. Of course, they're going to feel hopeless. Joan Baez, the singer-songwriter, said, action is the antidote to despair. And David Orr, the um, professor at Oberlin College, said, hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. And we need to help students to roll up their sleeves and take action and fill themselves up with the hope that comes from the positive changes they'll create. So if we are going to address these problems in the education system, what other systems and stakeholders are we going to have to address? You can't just create a school with a whole new model and new way of assessing a new curriculum without, for example, dealing with university admissions. Mm -hmm. You can't do that then without first also dealing with the accreditation bodies. And then, but in order to get deal with accreditation bodies, first you have to get opt-in from families and you need to deal with the parents. And then at the same time, you want to establish industry partnerships and figure out what the industry demands are around high school education. So you have government, private entities, parents. So this entire web and system of education in place. And you can't change one component without dealing with the rest. It's like multiple chickens and multiple eggs <laughs> at the same time. And then there's this interplay between the education system and the world at large. I really do believe that a lot of the issues that we're seeing manifest in today's world can be traced back in terms of the root causes of the problem to the wrong kind of education. And at the same time, you can embed the right kind of solution 
into the education system to solve a lot of issues in the world. Raya mentioned universities, but how does higher ed actually play an influence in the K-12 system? Victoria explains that it creates a mindset for everyone involved that keeps the system from changing. I think the university system is really stifling innovation in the K-12 system because it's just got such a hold on entry, the entryway into careers. Sure. So, you know, there's, there's such a sense, and it's true, that you have to have a college degree to have a great career, and now it's sort of even you have to have a master's degree. <laughs> right. The, you know... It's upping the ante, and therefore there is so much focus on and fear from parents and and their teenage kids about getting into college. And you know, it, it's believed that to get into college, you have to have good grades, a good GPA, you have to have taken advanced placement courses, you have to have tested well, which really encourages the focus on all of these sort of more traditional approaches to education that we just discussed with the extrinsic motivation and the focus on knowledge recall. And I think it just, even with parents who can look and school administrators and teachers who can look and say, this is not the best way for me to educate my kid, this kid, they are so focused on on not taking any risks that would mess up this path to college that you just plow forward doing what doesn't seem right to the kid. <laughs> but one of the biggest influences on the quality of education in our systems, money, and how that is allocated to schools and districts. Resource allocation given to schools is so incredibly different across different neighborhoods. And I think it's that problem exists around the world, but it's really exacerbated in the U.S., given that property taxes are used to allocate school funding. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, there's problems enough in the system, but then when you have some schools being given far greater resources than others, much better teachers, much better resources, that just creates a whole other level of problems. And it's so often the kids that anyway were at a disadvantage because they weren't getting the preschool education or they weren't getting as much focus on education in their homes for a variety of reasons then go into schools that are inherently not as good from day one but sometimes it's just not how much resources each school gets but if they are allocating resources effectively Fariti Saraf, founder of k20 a network of educators on the forefront of teaching practices and technology describes how the structure of schools actually proliferate the resource allocation problem. Most of education is nonprofit. And the systems that that are undergirding these nonprofits and these um, organizations are are massively broken, <laughs> right? There, there's this big misconception that schools don't have enough money in the United States, that, you know, state schools or government schools don't have enough money. And that's actually not true. They, they, they do have a lot of money. They, they get... In New York, for example, they're they're receiving eighteen thousand dollars per student, right? Oh, and wow. that's for for general students, and then for special ed students, they receive even more. the The problem is that they aren't allocating their funds in the right ways, and the the structures and the infrastructure that's set up in these schools are are not being allocated or being set up in the right ways. And so, funds will go into really weird places that like aren't the most efficient. And this economic inequality permeates not just the school system but the lives of students as well. Elizabeth Crawford, co-author of Worldwise Learning with Carla Marshall, who we heard from earlier, shares her firsthand experience with children facing this issue. So my, my teaching background is in Title I schools predominantly. So I was a classroom teacher, taught kindergarten and fifth grade um, in a rural, high-poverty 
County in Georgia. So I've seen firsthand how all these systems outside of school impact learning in the classroom. My children were part of the statistic of one in six um, children in the U.S. who are food insecure. Hmm. My students' parents worked in industrial chicken farming that you could smell in our classroom when the wind would blow and would actually work illegally after school in dangerous conditions in, in this poultry farming. And I would do home visits, so I would see their living conditions and students in poverty often live in substandard housing. And one of my children that I visited during the holidays, eight adults were living in a two-bedroom house, and I learned that he was sleeping on the couch. And right before the holidays, before we released for the winter break, he told me that he had tried to commit suicide. And so I still keep these stories with me of these children that I taught 15 years ago because I saw firsthand the effects of, of poor working conditions, low wages, lack of food security, and all the other issues that come with poverty. And so you can imagine these children coming to school, and school is a safe place. A lot of our students didn't want to leave for the winter break, Mm -hmm. which was um, so surprising to me, coming from a different system in Florida where children could were counting down the days for the holidays, but our students were actually sad to leave school because they received love and care and two good meals a day. And so I think poverty is one of the the largest issues. It's only getting worse in the United States. And actually globally, it's been exacerbated by the COVID pandemic as well. I love this idea of education, being able to give the tools and empowerment to the students to make a change in their life. Like they feel like they have some agency within their life. You know, in that example, you're having somebody that's living in poverty and having all these other things going on in their life you can only imagine the feeling of chaos and, you know, not being able to do something. And an education like this gives them the tools and the power to be like, maybe I can make some sort of difference in my life, even though all these other crazy things are going on. I have been fortunate to keep up with a lot of my children who are in their late 20s now. And I've seen the effects of, of advocates who step up for these children and, you know, show them that they could have a better life. There are a lot of, of course, deep-rooted issues that we can't control, but having adults as advocates for children it has a huge impact on children who are living in poverty. The education crisis is large, deeply rooted, and needs solved. And for those who have decided to take upon themselves to solve this issue, they're facing a huge obstacle, regulation. So hmm. one of the biggest bottlenecks I've experienced personally, my team has experienced, and you hear complaints about often, is this heavy heavy regulations in the education system, especially with K-12 education. A lot of countries in the world, and in the United States, this varies from state to state, but a lot of countries in the world have very strict mandates about who can start a school, the processes required to start a school, and the standards that school has to meet in order to effectively be a school. Now, of course, any functioning society wants to have quality assurances in place to make sure that anyone who's claiming to provide a quality education and is officially considered a school is doing certain things right to do justice by the society and to make sure their their children are taken care of and parents have that kind of security that the government is moderating and making sure things are okay. But some countries have gone as far as you have to teach subject-based education 
you have to use traditional report cards in many regions in the world. You, you got, if you decide to revamp things into a skills transcript or a portfolio transcript, which is what a lot of people are saying we should start doing instead, the ministries of education won't attest those. They won't recognize it as a legit transcript because it doesn't look like a traditional subject-based report card. There are all these regulations around how, how often or how much students have to be in schools. So the moment you start trying to do hybrid um, or online first or giving learners flexibility to come in whenever they want to come in, you start breaking the law. So Crazy. and then there's curriculum mandates as well. In some countries, even in some states in the U.S., there is mandates around you have to teach X, Y and Z and you have to teach up to the, the standard of math and the standard of English. And if you wanted to challenge that and say, you know what, we would like to redo our math curriculum and focus more on practical everyday math, like financial literacy or data and anal analytics and make it optional. Mm -hmm. Not everyone needs to know advanced quadratic equations, but we want to make that optional. Some countries and some states literally won't allow that. It's like no, everyone has to meet these standards. So all of these different regulations make it so, so, so difficult for someone to say, I want to start a new kind of school. That being said, there are loopholes. A lot of what a lot of people do is they start registering out of states where they get more freedom or out of countries, they get more freedom and they operate as an online first approach. Some countries like Netherlands as a great example of this. They have an entire category of schools called special schools, and they have a different quality assurance standards for those schools because they're so innovative. Mm -hmm. And so they've created a whole system to quality assure those schools in a unique way to allow that freedom of education and choice from the parents, but also the innovation to happen on part of the education providers. And so you're seeing a few nice case studies globally, but I think systemically, that's probably the biggest bottleneck right now to real change in the space. And those heroes that Elizabeth spoke about before, the teachers who can actually be advocates for children's education, they feel how much this regulation chokeholds their superpower. And I, I graduated through a K-12 traditional education system, and I also prepared primarily teachers to enter that system. And I think another problem is this top-down model that we've created where our teachers who are actually on the, on the front lines in the classroom working with children don't have a say often in what they teach. And, and it's becoming even more standardized. I would have thought because of the past year and a half, we would have learned a lot of lessons about what is effective or not. But my students are in the field now and the messages they're giving to me are, you know, it's very rigid and mm -hmm. standardized, scripted. Locally, we have a scripted literacy and mathematics curriculum that they're not able to deviate from. And then a pacing calendar. And Variti sees this problem all the time in her community of educators, but reminds us that it is not the educator's fault. Educators, I think, are inherently very creative and they desire to create new experiences and problem solve on a daily basis. And so when educators are presented with a problem, which they are about a thousand times a day, <laughs> and, and they have to put out fires a thousand times a, a, a day, they are constantly coming up with solutions that, are, that, that could re create really impactful experiences for students. But as soon as they think of a solution that doesn't fit the frameworks of a school, they have to constrain their, their solution. And so that leads to poor outcomes, that leads to poorer you know, systems and creativity. And the reason those constraints exist is mostly because of government, government regulations, right? Mm. So schools, for example, are beholden to how they 
perform on test scores or how the school overall is graduating students in order to actually be able to get more funding per student. If a school tries something that's more innovative and doesn't necessarily succeed in its first year, then they are at risk of losing funds and losing students. And so, so, so that's highly problematic. And then, for example, if, you know, certain schools, for example, charter schools, they have all of these sort of, you know, goals that they need to achieve for state tests. And so what you will find is that charter schools, many, many charter schools will start off with the best of intentions, right? And they'll be like, yeah, we're, you know, about project-based learning and we're about inquiry-based learning, critical thinking and blah, blah. And they'll start off really great programs and then state tests will arrive. And if their students don't do well, then the following year, they'll spend three months just preparing students for state tests, Mm -hmm. right? So So I think these like, these regulations around standardized testing and these regulations around like these competitive, like, you know, success rates really lead to sort of like handcuffing teachers into doing more creative things. So let's recap where we are so far. We have established that the goal of education should be about helping each student thrive individually and helping to better humanity as a collective. However, the current education system is not preparing them with the skills they need to solve the challenges our world faces, nor is it creating any personal meaning for their lives. We identified the scope of the problem includes curriculum focused on rote memorization rather than real-world application, disciplines being isolated, a focus on motivators such as exams and grades, division of children by age groups and not by their cognitive ability, a lack of personalization of material for students, and credit for learning only being given to learning that's happening within traditional boundaries of the school. We also learned that the education crisis is exacerbated by other systems such as regulation, higher education influences, and the resource inequality available to school districts. And finally, we discovered that if we don't address these issues, the education crisis could result in a $13 trillion skills gap for the global economy, and many of the world's most pervasive challenges like climate change or poverty are unlikely to be solved because people will not have the skills to do so. So where does this leave us? How do we solve this problem? Well, I specifically interviewed each of these experts that you've heard today because they have some innovative solutions to the education crisis. Coming up, you're going to hear a comprehensive introduction to each person's solution. Then in the following weeks, I will be releasing each person's individual interview so you can hear in depth how their solution works and the story of the people behind each solution. Now, I'm quite biased towards building new solutions, but before we hear how these solutions are revolutionizing education, Carla Marshall is going to share what values and practices still work from the current system that we should keep before throwing everything out. So there's the social function of schooling, which has existed, you know, as a physical place. I think, you know, you you won't be able to remove schooling completely and only have it in in a virtual kind of context uh, without that kind of physical environment for relationship building, forming friendships, social interactions. And so the social function of schooling is, is super important for socialization for our students. The second is really around disciplinary learning. And, you know, although in the book we advocate for interdisciplinary learning and for looking more holistically at what we're teaching our students using issues as organizers, we're not advocating for totally throwing out disciplinary learning. We recognize that each discipline provides a lens for being able to understand the world. You know, thinking historically through, you know, concepts like cause and consequence or change is a really important uh, tool that we can have as a thinking tool to be able to make sense of the world around us. So what we're advocating for is an and 
instead of, you know, throw, throw it all away and, yes. and kind of raise it to the ground and start over. It's yes, there are some great things that we can, we can get in terms of our understanding from disciplinary learning, but it's not sufficient. It's not enough. So we need to go beyond just the disciplinary learning framework. And we need to make sure that we're helping um, our students see the cohesion, the connectedness between these areas of learning and their world around them and giving them opportunities to actually use the learning in some way. So moving from a passive model to a more active model of education. And I think, you know, the teacher as a facilitator of that is, is still very important. We're also not advocating for getting rid of teachers and just having students by themselves. Of course, we are advocating for, you know, more student voice, more ownership over the curriculum and students feeling like they have the ability to shape their learning in the classroom. But that is, you know, with the support of caring adults, as Elizabeth um, mentioned before. What are these active models of education? Well, our first solution comes from Zoe Wow, who you may recall is the co-founder and president of the Institute for Humane Education and the author of The World Becomes What We Teach, Educating a Generation of Solutionaries. Zoe believes that in order to create a more sustainable, equitable, and peaceful world, we must reimagine education and prepare a generation to be solutionaries, young people with the knowledge, tools, and motivation to create a better future. Our mission is to educate people to create a world where all humans, animals, and nature can thrive. And we do that by preparing teachers to educate students to be what we call solutionaries who are able to solve problems that we face. Can you explain what a solutionary is? So a solutionary is somebody who is able to identify unsustainable, unjust, and inhumane systems and then devise solutions that do the most good and the least harm for everyone. And when I say everyone, I mean people, animals, and the environment. So a solutionary isn't the same thing as a problem solver. Uh, a problem solver could be an engineer who's not thinking about the human rights implications or the animal protection implications or the environmental implications of the thing that they're trying to solve. But a solutionary always is. And solutionaries have an ethical component that is attached to their work in solving problems. What are the critical skills that they would need in order to be a solutionary? One of the, the sort of habits of mind or the, or the dispositions would be a compassionate disposition where they actually care about others and wanting to solve the problem. And then there are some thinking skills that, that comprise solutionary thinking. So solutionary thinking is comprised of critical thinking, systems thinking, strategic thinking, and creative thinking. And while that is not a linear process, you know, thinking is not just a linear process, it is important to think about them in this order because critical thinking lies at the foundation. So without good critical thinking skills, without being able to research carefully, without being able to assess what's true and what's false or being able to tell what's a fact from something that's an opinion. Without that core critical thinking ability, it becomes difficult to be a systems thinker. Systems thinker takes it to the next level and then you start to understand all these interconnected systems through your critical thinking. 
And then the next step would be to be a strategic thinker, because in order to be a solutionary, you have to be strategic about how you address and solve the problem that you're facing. How do you find the right leverage points for creating change? And then you bring all of those thinking skills and and you add to them creative thinking. And then you've just got this beautiful recipe for becoming a solutionary and solving problems in ways that are good for everyone. But how do we begin connecting these large global problems to the curriculum students learn? Carla points out that these problems can be connected to a student's local context, a place where they can take action and have agency, and extending that to the global context as students begin to understand more. Oh, students are learning about issues happening in some other country halfway around the world, and maybe only issues that exist at the global level. And that is not how we conceptualize that term. It's very much around local to global and this idea that Robinson coined, which is globalization. So the local issues that you see outside your house, around your block, in your community are fractals or examples of things happening in a more wide scale. And things at a wider scale, things like climate change or racial inequity, are going to be able to be seen and perceived at the local level as well. So you have this kind of synergy between local and the global. And so as we're helping students with understanding local issues in their communities, then we're giving them opportunities to look at other case studies from other places in the world so that they can test out their ideas and see, okay, so this is our issue with water pollution here in Michigan. How does that relate to water pollution in China? Are there similar kind of root causes for these things or are they somehow different? And in that way, we kind of stretch the students' understanding of that concept. And as Zoe experienced... This can be very empowering for students. One thank you letter in particular has stayed with me. And this was from an eighth grader. And I had gone into um, her class for a week every morning doing a humane education block. And I got all these letters. And this one uh, girl wrote that spending that week with me was the most inspiring week of her life. And when you read something like that, you know, you first feel pretty good about yourself. And the more I thought about that letter, the more disturbing I found it. Because spending a week with me should not be the most inspiring five days of any teenager's life. And it felt less a compliment to me than actually an indictment of our education system. Because our education system should be inspiring. Learning is intrinsically wonderful, fascinating, enlivening, exciting. And we know how many students feel bored in school. And, And the very concept of school being boring, it should be the biggest oxymoron in the world. School should be as as thrilling a period of time as there could be. But how effective is Zoe's solution? In terms of our actual success at at transforming the educational system, we have a very long way to go, but we have the right solution. So if you have the right solution, then what the next step would be, we need solutionary strategies for getting this solution to be implemented all over the planet. And I would say that Andra's work in San Mateo County 
would fall into that category of most solutionary for getting this implemented in an entire county. Andrea Yeghoyen is a coordinator in the Office of Education in San Mateo County, which has made the solutionary approach the philosophy and framework for the entire county that serves 113,000 students in 23 school districts. They've trained hundreds of teachers using Zoe Wiles' book, The World Becomes What We Teach. These teachers, in turn, have created solutionary units for their classrooms. San Mateo County has also launched an annual solutionary fair through which students have been sharing their solutions to problems that they care about. So my role is I'm the Environmental Literacy and Sustainability Coordinator at the San Mateo County Office of Education. And so we were one of the first county offices in the state to have a role like this that really was about launching this broad environmental literacy initiative. Mm -hmm. And for us, a county office, everything we do is really suggestive to our school districts. We can't force our school districts to do anything. We have 23 school districts in our county, and that's about 170 public schools. And then we also have about 100 private schools. What I'm excited about is that when people participate in our program, we usually see like if it's an administrator in our program, they'll buy a whole set of books and have their staff read it. Or if it's a teacher who's in the program, she'll be like, oh, I'm going to have my whole department's going to read this book and then we're going to bring it in and they, they come through our program. So it's it's spreading like without us having to do the work now, it's spreading because we've built the capacity of leadership in our county to actually spread that message and to embed that philosophy. And what we always see is like teachers are always commenting like, oh, my students came alive or oh, those English language learners who had been really struggling to engage like are super engaged now or oh my gosh when we took the kids outdoors I saw kids interacting in a way that I've never seen them and they really came alive we had a kindergarten class that did a whole thing around clean water and they got on the local news and it was just like this huge moment their little faces were beaming we had a third grade classroom that um, went to the board the school board and was like why do we have you know single-use disposables we had you know fifth graders really advocating for safer streets so we just kind of see it all the way up the chain so we've seen middle schoolers and high school schoolers tackle like real big challenges and really make make an impact in their community. And then in our own program for the youth, because we run a high school program, a climate leadership program, we use this framework when we work with them. And same thing, we're seeing kids like build gardens in their in schools. We've seen kids advocate for switching to renewable energy. We've seen kids bring in, you know, get rid of plastic and single-use disposables on their campuses, bringing in compost bins. This can all happen. It's happening in San Mateo. It can happen in other counties across our country. It can happen across the world. This is not that hard to do. What it takes is it takes leaders at administrative levels like Andra who are helping teachers to integrate this into schools. It takes schools and school leaders being on board and 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 then the sky's the limit. And if we can do this, if we can really do this, there's just no question at all that we will see entrenched problems begin to get solved because there will be a generation of solutionaries that has practice and has the disposition and has the skill set to do it. Exciting and progressive curriculum, but how do we actually make curriculum like this? Our next solution comes from Elizabeth Crawford and Carla Marshall, who are the authors of Worldwide Learning, A Teacher's Guide to Shaping a Just and Sustainable Future. These experienced educators have developed the framework called the Worldwide Learning Cycle, that supports educators in nurturing students who both deeply understand and purposely act when learning about global challenges. So uh, we opened the book 
with the context in which we're living today in a fast-paced, globalized, interconnected world and all the challenges that come with that. And so our mission with WorldWise Learning was to humanize education, to show how we can meaningfully bring in issues that our students care about, that connect to their lives, their passions, and their concerns. And so we designed a WorldWise Learning framework that shows how to design curriculum centered on issues that matter to our students that also connect to our curriculum that reflect our globalized world, local challenges that have global significance. And coupled with that, we created an inquiry cycle to support teachers to design their curriculum centered on these issues, to connect to students, to each other, to themselves, to the world, to help them understand these issues deeply, such as through systems thinking, and then also give them the space and the agency to take action Mm. to to be a positive force to create change in their local communities and beyond. And then foundational to this work is the creation of democratic classrooms. And so we have an entire chapter on that, how to co-plan our curriculum with our students. So how to design the curriculum alongside our students so that it reflects their interests and connects to their lives. And so we create spaces where students can openly discuss what their interests are, their passions, what they care about, so that we can create curriculum that is relevant to them. Carla, I want to dive into the worldwide learning cycle. So could you walk us through maybe how an issue could be explored going through the cycle of connect, act, and then understand? In our worldwide learning cycle, we have this idea that we're organizing the learning using a local, global, or intercultural issue. And then the inquiry cycle that we walk our students through is to connect to that issue, to understand it, and then to act. So the idea with connect is really that we're, we're forming emotional connections to those issues and the individuals who are impacted by them. And so we use a number of strategies to be able to do that. We may take, kind of immerse ourselves So we may go and do field trips where we're actually spending time in an environment or in a part of the community that we may not know very well. We're engaging in perspective taking. So talking to people and getting information through, you know, interviews, oral oral histories, potentially doing perspective taking strategies where we are doing role play or thinking about how people may feel in a particular issue. And then using story as a big vehicle for developing deep understanding and, and understanding that this isn't kind of like an analytical or linear, like you do this and you can just solve it, but actually that there's a lot that go into these issues. And so we, we have that in the connect phase. And after they've sufficiently kind of connected to the issue and have developed that empathy for those who are involved and affected, then we start to use systems thinking and conceptual thinking to be able to understand the issue more analytically. And so here we're using systems thinking strategies such as systems mapping. So the idea there is an issue is filled with different connections, parts that interrelate. And it's about trying to pull things apart and see those relationships and be able to see kind of what is producing particular behaviors in the system. What are the underlying values or mental models or belief systems that are propping up these particular systems? And then what are the leverage points that we might be able to, to use to develop 
informed action. So we do that with our systems thinking, and we also then take issues to the conceptual level. So this means that, you know, students may be learning about, I don't know, Rosa Parks or Malala or something like that. And you could say, well, that's locked. It's, it's a factual content. It's locked in time, place, and situation. How is this actually going to support transfer? So the whole idea here is that the educator is helping students make that connection between these particular case studies, and that might be local individuals, local places, local issues, and then kind of extracting big ideas from that. So with Rosa Parks and Malala, it might be around, you know, effective ways to take action in your community. It might be um, something more affective about what people do when they encounter challenge. And then you can actually take that and transfer it to a new situation and context. And then in the ACT phase, it's really about providing the space and opportunity for students to engage with that community that is being affected by an issue and to do something about it. And the reason why we advocate so much about starting with the local issues in particular for our youngest students, is we, we don't want our learners to be creating superficial kind of surface level responses to complex issues. And we don't want a kind of charity approach to, to issues. Oh, we'll just send some money to someone somewhere else in the world and they can deal with it. We actually want them to be thinking about sustainable ways of addressing this within their local communities to improve their communities. So we do that in the ACT phase. And of course, that would be coupled with uh, reflection on how well they feel that they've, they were able to, to do that. I'd like to talk about the ACT phase. So once students connect and then they understand, they start creating solutions as global citizens. I would love if both of you gave a story of solutions that students have created, you know, after going through this cycle and what the role of the teacher was as a guide or facilitator in these solutions. So Carla, if you'd like to start. Sure. I'll give a early childhood example. So um, in a pollinator unit for kindergartners, they had learned a little bit about life cycles. They learned about the relationship between pollinators and other organisms in local garden habitat. And they also learned about kind of the role of pollination in farming systems and the way that pollinators can be harmed by particular actions where habitats are removed, pesticides are sprayed, fertilizers that are um, high in certain chemicals are used, and so on. So when it came to the ACT phase, the question really became, you know, what are some of the root causes of the particular die-out that we're having of pollinators, where you either have colony collapse disorder, which is happening with bees, where whole colonies of bees will die, which they've associated very strongly with um, the use of pesticides in farms, but also then monoculture farming. And then the second is, you know, from these from these particular root causes, you know, what can, what can we then do? So identifying that there's a loss of habitat and that the habitats that we do have, we shouldn't be spraying with chemicals, you know, that, that, that were two kind of simple ideas. And then so the, the goal was basically to create a pollinator garden to make sure that there was like a rest stop for particular local butterfly species and bees and their offspring. So it's about understanding what are the local butterflies that we have in our area? What are the hosts for the caterpillars? So the young of those butterflies. So making sure that we have host plants, 
making sure that we have flowering plants and the best is flowering plants that flower all year long. So you don't just have, you know, two months of blooming and then they're gone. So they thought about that and then they planted a little pollinator garden um, and made sure that there was a way where it was going to be sustainably, you know, cared after, watered and all that. And then that became their action. So I think, you know, we often assume like, oh, action, like go out into the world and like do, you know, it has to be so big all the time, but right. it doesn't. It's about, it's actually about how meaningful it is. And it's about micro actions towards bigger issues. And so for them to put a little rest stop for the, the caterpillars and the butterflies and the bees, that is actually really meaningful to, you know, a five-year-old. And that those five-year-olds can then say, look, we're getting the visitors. It's worked. Like they can actually go out and see that there's that impact that they've had. So that's an early childhood example. Elizabeth, would you like to share your example? Sure. I can give an example on the other end of the spectrum. Um, A middle school teacher we feature in the book, Shannon teaches here in in North Carolina, and she uses the design for change framework paired with project-based learning. And so one year, several years back, her students became concerned about racism in this eighth grade classroom. And they read in the newspaper about um, the first family in Wake County who tried to integrate Wake County schools in in the 1950s after Brown v. Board. And so they interviewed this man. He's a civil rights pioneer, Joe Holt Jr., to learn how has systemic racism affected him and his life. Personally, you know, what happened during that time, his parents attempted to enroll him in in a white school and how they were impacted by being attacked and living in fear and all that the family experienced in their struggle to integrate the schools. Mm -hmm. And they then partnered with Joe Holt Jr. They sort of adopted him as a mentor for their project and uncovered a host of other issues connected to systemic racism in this area. So they discovered, for example, undocumented lynchings that had happened and thinking about present day effects of the, these, these, these histories that we often don't talk about and how a lot of our buildings, monuments, parks are named after white supremacists. So this happened a lot, actually, after the, the murder of George Floyd. A lot of parks locally, our, our local park was renamed pretty much overnight. And the children, the, the adolescents attempted to do the same thing. They realized that a lot of their schools in Raleigh were actually named after white supremacists. So they spoke at the Board of Education to try to change the name of, of a local high school. And while they were unsuccessful that year, Shannon wrote me an email about two weeks ago that they have finally decided to change the name of the school. <laughs> and so I think about, you know, maybe that would have never happened had these 14-year-olds not decided to raise awareness and inform adults about what, you know, about the harm and, and trauma that's caused by perpetuating these histories. Now, what happens when you take this kind of curriculum to an entire school? Let me introduce the solution from Raya Bichari, founder and chief executive officer of the School of Humanity, which is an online first high school with an interdisciplinary curriculum and progressive learning model. Our mission at the School of Humanity is to really uh, contribute to human progress and push humanity forward through the right kind of education. And we think we can do this through education that is interdisciplinary, outcome-based, that is guided by a desire to better oneself and better the world, and where the outcomes and standards and intentions align with the needs of humanity in order to ensure uh, we move in a positive direction. Yeah. Well, one of your favorite quotes from Buckminster Fuller is, you never change things by fighting against the existing reality. 
to change something, build a new model that makes the old model obsolete. So what is the solution and new model with the School of Humanity that you're proposing in opposition to the traditional model that yeah. we've been talking about? Yeah, I do love that code. I think it captures uh, what we're doing beautifully. So what we've done at the School of Humanity, and for listeners who aren't aware, we've created an online first school where we reimagine everything. And in terms of what we learn, we've actually created our own unique curriculum. We've created something called the Human Development Standards, where we've it's uh, it's kind of like our graduate competency framework, mm. if you will. And we've mapped out over 600 competencies, mindsets, and behaviors that we think every high school graduate should have. And it includes some of the traditional stuff like mathematical reasoning, scientific literacy, and you know key communication skills. But we've placed equal emphasis on new emerging technology proficiencies, morality and ethics, emotional intelligence, existential intelligence, creative expression. And for us, those things are equally important. And how learners learn is by embarking on interdisciplinary learning paths. So an example of an interdisciplinary learning path might be around sustainable fashion or future of medicine or creating virtual worlds. And all of these paths are mapped to these learning outcomes. So we're actively assessing and evaluating whether what skills the learner is learning, what mindsets they're picking up along the way, what projects they're creating, what connections they're making as they embark upon these kind of interdisciplinary paths. Every path is different. So, you know, on a certain path, you work on different projects as a learner. So it ultimately becomes personalized to you. Mm. Um, another key differentiating factor is there are no grades. Mm. Um, we cater to high school students that's between ages 14 to 18, but learners can progress and advance through the curriculum in a really fluid way at their own pace. We don't box them into certain paces. We just know where they, we want them to end up, how they get there is, is up to them. And in terms of where the learning happens, um, we uh, are an online first school, but we're already in conversations with some big part potential partners like WeWork to move in a hybrid direction through what we call co-learning spaces so that learners can continue to kind of have those in-person experiences. And finally, one of my favorite things that we've done is we've completely eradicated summative standardized paper-based exams. We don't just, we just don't do that. So every skill has its own way of being assessed. And we do this through regular project-based, what we call in education as formative assessments, which are more realistically aligned to how your skills would get assessed in the workforce. And for us, it's, it's, a just more effective way of measuring competencies rather than just relying on one paper-based test. But it also means that you can change the incentives of learning, mm. shifting away from this obsession with exams towards I'm learning to better myself and better the world around me, which I, I find that the whole process is just more engaging for the learners. And they're just more excited to come to school and to learn when that is why they're going to school. Uh, a huge component of the School of Humanities you know, curriculum in trying to help move humanity forward is integrating challenges that are happening in the world with, you know, a student's yeah. interest so that they it creates this purpose-driven learning for them. How do you guys integrate those two things and really prepare students to solve these challenges? Sure. So um, going a little deeper into our learning paths, there's, there's three types of learning paths that interrelate with one another uh, in our programs. One are these challenge paths where the learning is guided by solving a local or by designing a solution to a challenge. Now, this might be an entrepreneurial solution. It might be a creative one. It might be a scientific one. It can really be 
lots of different things. We have these skill paths where you focus on specific mastering specific competencies. So there might be a skill path on systems thinking, right? And you might need to take certain skill paths in order to solve a certain challenge. And towards for the older learners, we also do career paths where they start doing apprenticeships and internships and actually getting mm-hmm. real work experience and that being a way of them building up their uh, the outcomes as well. Now, how do we get to that place. So I think what would be useful is if I share a few examples. Um, we just wrapped up our six-week summer school and we had learners from nine countries calling participating in this program. Even more if you count their nationalities, these were just where they were calling in from. And they embarked upon different challenge paths like future of money, future of medicine, self-knowledge and well-being, and, and many more. And so, for example, for the learners under future of medicine pathway, different learners pursued different sub-challenges. So one learner was really passionate about pursuing female healthcare, and she narrowed in specifically around diagnosis of endometriosis. And she designed a really cool solution that would use biomarkers and other tools to better diagnose it early. And in the process of doing that, she actually learned a lot about anatomy. She learned a lot about app development. She honed her communication skills. So there's real hardcore learning that we are assessing regularly happening, but she's doing it in a way that really excites her. Another example I can give, it had one learner under the designing space settlements pathway that basically she, her challenge was around how do you make, how how can we produce oxygen on Mars? Mm -hmm. And she was designing a robot, uh, a prototype of a robot that would use electrolysis to convert the raw materials on Mars into oxygen. And she was learning key science skills, chemistry. She learned a lot of 3D prototyping. She made some really cool videos. So she honed some awesome communications and branding skills. And these are some really powerful skills to have going into today's workforce. But again, it was done in a way where it was driven by the desire to better the world. But how effective is Riot Solution been? Of course, there's always areas that we know we need to work on, do better. And you know, we always receive good constructive criticism as well. But what has been so amazing for us is this is the program that we did, the summer school that we did. And again, I, I wish I could show you the raw data. I'm not making this up. 100% of the learners wanted to participate in more programs. 100% of them wanted saw themselves full time. We have learners now asking us actively, when is the full-time program going to launch? You know, parents who reach out to us. One of the things that was really validating for us is, you know, we, we knew that as an online first school, we had to do a lot of extra work to make sure that there was a, a vibrant community mm-hmm. and a vibrant social life. So we went as far as creating an entire virtual world on a spaceship on Gavertown. <laughs> Amazing. Where, you know, learners had scavenger hunts and, you know, we had like almost as much as we could bring it closer to that in-person experience. And it was really successful. Like when we surveyed the learners, you know, most of them were hanging out with each other in that virtual world, socializing just for fun and informal ways. Most of them made lots of friends from around the world, which turned out to be a huge value add as a global kind of cohort. And most of them felt loved. We actually asked them, did you feel loved? Did you love the community? And they, the lower love just kept coming up a lot. Last thing I will add as well is just an indication of, I, I really think the time is right is we've had registrations of interest across the board for all four of our programs from families in over 16 countries um, across you know, four continents. Now let's turn our attention to another innovative online school, Prisma. 
which is for fourth through eighth graders who want an education tailored to their interests, abilities, and goals for the future. Victoria Ransom, co-founder and CEO of Prisma, guides us through what Prisma is and how it works. So we are a uh, comprehensive solution for fourth through eighth graders who are learning from home or frankly from anywhere they like, anywhere in the world. We are not like a typical online school though. I would say sort of online schools have tended to take the traditional model of education <laughs> and deliver it online, which yeah. to some in some respects is the worst of both worlds. <laughs> so, you know, they still have grades and they still have lectures. You know, some online schools that we know of, your kids can't even talk. They just have to listen. They still have textbooks. They may be delivered electronically, but they feel a lot like textbooks. And so we are very different from that because we're very much focused on project-based learning, sort of hands-on learning, interdisciplinary, tying learning to the real world. We're very much focused on kids moving at their own pace. So we take a very innovative um, or progressive approach to education and deliver it online. We are very different from traditional homeschooling because uh, we focus a lot on community and making Prisma a very social experience. So kids are a part of a cohort of kids that they see and interact with and learn with really regularly and sharing with one another in social emotional development. Our workshops are super interactive. The other thing is that we have coaches. They have small group of kids that they get to know really, really well, and they are there to help Bring out the best in that child, understand what they're excited about, understand what they're capable of, give them very rich iterative feedback because we don't have grades at Prisma. We believe in the process of giving feedback to a kid as they're working their way through a project or through a piece of writing so that that learner can go back and revise. And theoretically, by the time they finish, it is their best work versus sort of the traditional approach where a kid does an assignment, gets a grade, moves on and never gets a chance to go back. And even if you get an A, there's always room to do better. Right. Always room to do better. So very different from uh, homeschooling, but have some similarities. Well, from the elements that you mentioned in the description of Prisma, can you walk me through, if I was a learner today, what a day in the life of a student would be like? Yeah, absolutely. So it is a mix of synchronous experiences and asynchronous because there's a lot of value to getting kids together live, but you shouldn't be doing that all day long like mm. some schools did do during yes. COVID. That gets exhausting. So no two kids have exactly the same Prisma day because we actually, one of the first things that a coach will do with a learner and their parent is create a custom schedule that really works best for that child. But roughly a Prisma day will look like the following. Starts with stand up, the same group of kids, same coach focused on sort of building community and a support group for kids. There's quite often sort of sharing with one another, how you're doing, how you're feeling, what's going on in your life, okay. talking about what's happening in the world. Sometimes there's just playing fun, interactive games and team games and that sort of thing. And then there's usually a block of time where kids would be working on their projects we do we're really focused on project-based learning then they have uh one main daily workshops but among the uh live workshops that kids might have on a given day we have uh, ethical decision making workshop which is really we give kids real scenarios usually something that really happened in the world or at least an adaptation of that and they have to work their way through you know decision making related to that scenario we have problem solving workshops where kids are working in small groups 
to solve real problems, often in a hands-on way. Kids also work through what we call missions. So they have math missions and writing missions and reading missions, which really sort of augment and reinforce the interdisciplinary work that they're doing in their projects. We have student-run clubs that are scattered throughout the week, although a lot of those uh, run on Fridays. And then we will build breaks into a kid's schedule. So there'll be a break for some kind of physical activity, whatever the kid is into that we build into their schedule. Most Prisma learners would be roughly working on their Prisma work, but there's some breaks in between from let's say nine till 2.30 or three. And the idea is they're done then. There's no wrangling over homework in the evenings. You get your work done during the day and, and the rest of the day is is free for you to pursue other interests. Well, in another interview, I heard you mention that students going through Prisma had grown 175% in their literacy rates and 150% in math. And you can double check me on those numbers. What are the other results or outcomes that you've seen with Prisma that speak to its effectiveness? Great question. Yeah, because we care just as much that kids are developing their communication skills, their critical thinking skills, their what we call designer's mindset. is something we focus on a lot at Prisma. We care as much about that as what their academic growth is, if, if not more, frankly, because we really think when you get into the real world, those are the things that make the difference between you really thriving and having a lot of options in your career. So we have through surveying of parents, sort of when they're kid comes in and in the middle of the year and at the end of the year, how do you think your child's collaboration skills have developed, their critical thinking skills, their ethical decision making, their sort of design, designer's mindset. That is one measure. It's not perfect, but we've we had a hundred percent of parents saying that they'd seen significant growth from their kids across mm. those sort of key outcomes that we look for in Prisma. So based on parents' perceptions, kids are growing a lot in all of those areas. We also ask coaches to sort of assess kids, the mentor coach of kids, how do they think they've grown and coaches across the board saw growth in all of those areas. Another thing that's really important to us is this love of learning, like sort of first and foremost, we want kids to be really excited about learning, about Prisma. And so one of the questions we ask is how happy are you at Prisma relative to your previous school, whatever that was, and 100% of Prisma kids have said they're happier at Prisma than they are in their previous school. So that is something that we really measure and track. So yeah, I think love of learning, academic growth as measured by the math and literacy stats that you just mentioned, which were very close, and sort of this perceived growth across these holistic skills are some of the things that we're really focusing on measuring. These are only but a few examples of the ways that educators, innovators, and entrepreneurs have been addressing the education crisis. But Riot alerts us that this movement is being picked up across the globe and alternative schools continue to pop up. So there's a new U school in Boston. It's spelled N-U-V-U. They're following a, a different pedagogy. It's an architectural studio pedagogy. So it's so much more hands-on, involves a lot of building and maker mm-hmm. spaces. Once again, they're a school with no subjects, no exams, no classrooms. They have a completely interdisciplinary curriculum as well. And they do these two-week modules and sprints where they focus on different skills in different areas. So similar mission in some way, but different approach in pedagogy. I love the work that they do. And they've been around for a while and have learners that have gone into amazing universities as well. There's the Agora School in Netherlands. Again, a school with no classrooms, no subjects, um, even no teachers. They have learning coaches instead. 
And every learner has their own personalized learning plan. There are no lessons. They learn whenever they want to. It's just like, it's a really fun environment, beautiful architecture for the school as well. There is the Think Global School. What's awesome about the Think Global School, it's a traveling high school. So think of it as a boarding school, but that moves around the world. So you spend a semester in a different country each time and they embed the curriculum around the country that you're in. So if you're in Athens, just, you know, can imagine the philosophy and the history that you would be learning about. And they're currently in Dubai, actually, which is uh, very cool as well. And again, completely, they're they're also following a competency-based model. They have their own unique curriculum. I believe it's called the Change Makers curriculum. Mm. And uh, they also adopt the mastery transcript and do a project-based, portfolio-based kind of format. And they also have students that have gone into Oxford and some of, you know, the leading universities in the world. Now let's review the building blocks of these solutions and how they are addressing the problems of the traditional model. First, each of these solutions use real problems, often global challenges our world faces, to make the curriculum relevant to the student and prepare them with the skills that they can use in their careers and lives. Not only does this make students more effective at solving problems, but it also helps them to bring meaning to a student's learning, increasing internal motivation, and the joy for learning. Second, students learn in an interdisciplinary fashion, using this challenge-based curriculum as a scaffolding to plug in the academic subjects like math, science, or history in order to help students create solutions. Oftentimes, creating solutions requires an intermixing of these subjects. We also see that these subjects are taught with projects, where students must apply the disciplines in tandem with one another in order to complete the project, which really reflects how we operate in the real world. Third, in the case of Prisma in the School of Humanity, these solutions focus on competency rather than grades or age levels. Combining a student's cognitive ability with their passions or interests, these schools are able to create personalized curriculum that is engaging and appropriate for each student's abilities to progress at the speed appropriate for them. And then students are assessed in a way that is more appropriate for them to demonstrate that they have mastered the skills that they have learned. And finally, these schools have broken down the boundary of school to allow students the flexibility to learn from anywhere, encouraging them to extend their learning far outside the classroom and understanding that learning occurs every day in every situation. Education has the opportunity to become a positive driver for solving our world's greatest challenges. By welcoming these types of innovative solutions, educators, innovators, and entrepreneurs like us can not only change the education system, but begin to change all the other systems we prepare students to tackle. Imagine the type of world that we could live in then. Now, my goal for these episodes is not just to tell you what the problems are and a few solutions that are being used, but inspire and help you to begin creating new solutions. And with that, our guests have a few pieces of closing wisdom to share for those who feel compelled to answer this call. Carla and Elizabeth remind us that the education system is large, but you can make a change. One complex system is education and it's nested, right? So you have the classroom, which is a complex system, the school itself, which is a complex system, which has, you know, leadership, which is promoting particular types of behaviors in the classroom. Some of these may be more about, you know, autonomy, giving students voice and whatnot. And some of them may be more, you know, stick to the curriculum, standardized testing. And so that's going to affect teachers' sense of self-advocacy. And then, you know, the district level or the state level and the national level with educational policy, 
making. And so all of these things are interplaying. But we argue that regardless of school context and how tight or how loose uh, your curriculum is, there are always ways in with your learners. And it's about recognizing where you have control and leveraging that control for meaningful learning with your le- with your students. Mm. I love that message because even a teacher that may be, you know, listening right now that's embedded within that classroom, that's embedded in the school, embedded within the larger education district, they may see the education system and say, well, I cannot change that. Like, I'd love to implement this type of curriculum, but it's not possible. But if you can start with the places that you have control and implementing it in those small ways, you know, from a bottoms up approach, you can start to have change in those systems. I advocate for just listening to your students. You know, there's seven hours in a school day. There are many opportunities to just listen to them. You know, what are they talking about? What do they care about? And then how can you draw from what they care about into into your examples when you're teaching? Maybe you're working with a scripted curriculum, but you can certainly pull from your students and and what they care about. They may care about the latest game like Pokemon or whatever kids are into, but show them that you care about them and that you listen to them and you, you want to know them as individual human beings. And that goes a long way. And that goes beyond just designing the curriculum, but the kind of teacher that you can be in the classroom that shows that children matter and that their voices matter and that Mm. you care about who they are as individuals is something that has a lifelong impact on them. And there are people like Andra who are embedded in the current system who are changing it from the inside out. And I think the thing that does keep me grounded is just looking at my children every day and then they are four and six years old. And every day I look at them and I say like, we got to do this like Mm -hmm. this, you know, it's their future. In fact, there are entire communities of educators and entrepreneurs who are passionate about changing the education system. Fariti is building an immersive community for educators to come together and fight this challenge. We're creating an ecosystem, an environment that will allow educators to learn from each other anytime they want. And so imagine New York City. Imagine if New York City, every single building, vendor, institute, you know, booth was dedicated to education and it was open 24 hours and there were always events happening and it was always daylight. (laughs) So that's essentially what we're building in an avatar-based environment. So like educators can pop in anytime they want for free Mm -hmm. And be able to walk into our innovation center and and see what projects other educators are working on, be able to walk into a career center and find some supplemental income if they want, be able to walk into our cafe or our lounge and be able to work with other educators that, that are there, maybe meet with them and set up meetings there if they want. So imagine if there's a new set of standards that gets rolled out or if there are new regulations that get rolled out. Imagine if educators could just pop into our city and basically say like, hey, what are the resources that are available that, you know, can help me with this new hurdle? Or, you know, they can organize among themselves and be able to meet in the city whenever they want and be able to, to create groups that, that could support each other. And yes, we're going to come up against obstacles like overwhelm, despair and complicity in our fight to solve this problem. There are days when I feel despair and I, there are days when I lose hope. Not most days by any means, but certainly there are times. But at the end of the day, for me, it also just comes down to my own integrity. I have to look in the mirror every day. And do I want to have respect for the person who's looking back at me or not? One day I'm going to die, as are we all, and I want to know that I tried. I want to know that I did my best. So there, 
while hope and well while hope is important and despair can be debilitating hope is not a prerequisite for doing good work integrity is a prerequisite for doing good work and integrity just means you walk your talk you live according to your principles and your values and i think that all of us would find that our lives have greater meaning and that we feel better about of ourselves whether or not we have hope on that particular morning or not if we live with integrity so i would invite anybody who's listening who has those moments where they succumb to despair to remind themselves that you just got to roll up your sleeves and and hope will follow most likely and even if it doesn't keep rolling up your sleeves because each of us can make a change you know that surely with our collective might we can do this together and that people do come together during times of crisis we can evolve by coming back as human beings on the shared planet and in creating a common vision for the future that we want for kids thank you for listening to the evolve podcast Links to everything we discussed today are available in the show notes. Transcripts are also available in the show notes. And everything can be viewed on our website at evolvethe.world. That's evolvethe.world. My one ask for you is to share this episode with others. If you know someone who is interested in social impact, social entrepreneurship, or just making a difference in the world, please share this episode with them. The challenges in our world need all of those who can contribute to existing solutions or create entirely new ones. So please share this show with those kind, intelligent people who are just like you. Until next time, my friend, keep evolving.